Welcome to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. For those of you who do not know me, I am currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rick Benny and Associates here in North Carolina. I was with the North Carolina Dental Board for 16 years prior to that. Um, I am on the CLEAR Board of Directors as well as the current chair of the National Certified Investigator Training Committee and vice chair of the annual conference program committee with CLEAR. As you are well aware, uh, the Council on Licensure, Enforcement, and Regulation, or CLEAR, uh, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. Our podcast is always a chance for you to hear about the latest and greatest in our community. And today I'm joined by some presenters for a session in the Entry to Practice uh, track at CLEAR's annual educational conference that's happening this September in Minneapolis. We'd like to give you a sneak peek of what's in store during the session. Uh, the session is titled, Too Much Information, the Use of Professional Social Media History and Registration, Investigations, and Professional Misconduct Prosecutions. I welcome Mark Spector with the College of Early Childhood Educators of Ontario, Dean Bernard with Bernard & Associates, Brad Williams with Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, and Jill Dorothy with Weir Founds LLP. We're glad to have you with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you, Lyon. Thanks. Thanks, Lyon. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining me. Um, first, let me let me turn this to Mark. Mark, you and I go back a long time, but I, I do have a starting question for you. To what extent has the approach that watchdogs have taken to social media evolved over the years? I know that's something you and I have talked about before, but kind of bring us up to date. Okay, thanks, Lyon. That's a really good question. Well, it starts by recognizing that some applicants for licensure, either regulatory or a watchdog, were actually born in the 2000s. Uh, they would never have no grown up in a world without having a social media presence. They've been contributing to that universe since they were children. And regulators and watchdogs from around the world are alive to this. Uh, for example, uh, closer to home, um, the watchdog for retirement homes and actually the uh, regulator for psychotherapists, they both conduct uh, media searches as part of their licensing processes. And in fact, uh, Immigration Canada, when people apply for uh, visitor visas to Canada, and oftentimes they are having their social media websites looked at as well. And this has all kinds of implications for both applicants and for watchdogs. So, for example, uh, for the watchdogs, do applicants know that, uh, that they're conducting these searches? Should they know? Um, do the regulators really want to know the answers, and are they ready for those answers when they're gleaned? And if we do take a look at that, well, how does this look different for different regulators? Do you have the resources to do that in a thoughtful and meaningful way? For example, with the Retirement Homes Watchdog, they have about 700 members or licensees. The psychotherapists have about 6,000. But what does that mean on the ground for a larger regulator? For example, there are about 200,000 teachers in Ontario, 150,000 nurses and about 50,000 attorneys and lawyers, and 75,000 engineers. What do social media searches look like for those regulators? Um, this is, changes the entire way that both applicants and regulators are, are looking at the issue of uh, social media history. Well, that's that's really interesting. I know it's something that you know we see here in North Carolina as well. Let me let me direct this maybe towards Dean. 
Um, Dean, what are you observing with respect to the number of investigations that are centered on or have a significant social media component with the work that you're doing? Well, I, you know, anecdotally, I can say that uh, social media is definitely having an impact on the number and uh, the nature of investigations we encounter. And, you know, we see this happening in different ways. For example, uh, the first way is, is really, you know, the most common impact we see is how it serves as the impetus for many concerns being reported. For example, a, a potential registrant is awaiting their licensing process to be completed and the regulator receives information about their social media posts. And sometimes those posts lead to questions about the person's suitability for registration. And of course, that ends up leading to a registration investigation. You know, the second impact we see sometimes is um, where social media, um, it, it isn't really a new issue. It, it isn't something that, that um, in other words, it's not a different type of investigation, but social media is what's leading to an investigation occurring. So, for example, uh, you know, we get reports of behaviors or issues that are, you know, as I say, not new or different, but just made known through social media. So some examples of this might be things like, you know, a healthcare practitioner advertising services that are outside their scope of practice, or a licensee promoting the sale of test answers for a registration exam. In fact, we, we've done two of those um, investigations. Um, wow. you know, or maybe a, a member posting things that suggest or leads to questions about their fitness to practice. So, you know, these are all examples of things that aren't really new in terms of uh, the nature of the matters being investigated, but this is where social media comes into play as a source of information that leads to the investigation starting or provides evidence to aid in the investigation. And in this respect, we've seen an upward trend. Now, with respect to social media being the actual issue, you know, we're also seeing an increase there as well. And it's not really surprising given that, you know, social media options and the proliferation of its use is always increasing. So it stands to reason that, you know, professionals will also be using these uh, services. And, and we had a case last year where a person working in a small community was posting uh, on Facebook about their experiences on the job. And those descriptions were such that other people in the community could, could actually identify some people involved. And in turn, there was a breach of confidentiality uh, through social media. So, so the short answer, or maybe now the long answer to your question, is yes, we are seeing a rise in social media component to our investigations. And as a result, we're always looking for evidence and information through that medium. Right. You know, and, you know, I immediately think to um, especially people getting licenses and, and what we experienced at the, at the dental board when I was working there, um, you know, we would constantly look at, at their Facebook pages and social, social media areas and, and you'd, you'd question uh, in your head their fitness to practice when you see some of their posts with their friends that I <laughs> just don't think about when they place them. Well, right. l let me ask you this, Dean. Um, are, are there any restrictions or obstacles to actually collecting and using that social media uh, to aid in an, an investigation? Well, you know, I think I think there definitely are, and I'm going to have to sort of start my answer with uh, that not so helpful phrase. It depends, um, and I know people hate that caveat, but uh, of course, <laughs> the reason I say this is because you know there's a variety of ways that we can obtain social media information. I think that's an important consideration. So, for example, in some cases, the information is truly in the public domain. For example, a person, you know, posts something openly on social media. No private account settings are implemented, and whatever they post is out there for all to see. And I think in these cases, uh, I don't see a lot of restrictions for its use in an investigation. Um, however, in other cases, you know, there's, there's situations where, uh, you know, people are, you know, posting through private accounts or within private groups. And the challenge for us is, 
you know, how do we get into these accounts and see what's there? And should we? And, you know, we may be given the access through a third party who wants us to see it, or we may even infiltrate a group by creating a fictitious account and getting ourselves invited into the group so we can see what's there and, and becoming, quotes friends, you know, with, with uh, subjects of interest. You know, still other times we're provided with information from another member to a private group, you know, just through a, a printed form or a screenshot. So essentially we can get what we want by one means or another, but, you know, this doesn't address the question of whether information we gather through these tactics will ultimately be usable later in some sort, you know, in a proceeding. So I think there are arguments that have yet to be fought on some of these uh, some of these issues, and it's important that investigators exercise some caution and seek advice from legal counsel before proceeding. You know, an argument can be made that you know having this information, whether admissible later or not, can still be extremely helpful to an investigation. But for now, I think we, you know, we need to consult appropriately on a case-by-case basis. Right, that makes good sense. Well, let me let me turn to Brad. Um, how does the increased prevalence of social media commentary influence public confidence that regulators are appropriately discharging their responsibility? I mean, it feels like it always comes back, in, at least in the states, to this kind of, you know, are you better off restricting a licensee's ability to use social media um, and, and infringe on their uh, Second Amendment, First Amendment right, but um, or is the public better off by being able to see and search these things out on their own? But I guess, what what are your thoughts? Oh, thanks, Lyon. Um, over the last 15 years, the social media has become a powerful source of communication and uh, it's readily accessible, allows anyone with an internet connection to publish their own content and to connect with other people. Um, for many, it's become a key source of information. It's overtaken traditional media sources such as print and television. Uh, social media campaigns such as we saw with the Me Too movement, for example, have a really strong influence on society and by allowing individuals to be part of a louder collective voice that brings an idea into the public consciousness. So as regulators we, we've have increasingly seen social media being used um, not only by the registrants but also by others um, to make public comment about disciplinary processes. So it might be for example a, a registrant who's um, been subject to some form of disciplinary investigation um, garnering support from um, let's say their social networks um, they might be asking them to lobby politicians. Uh, they might use their social networks to advertise protests um, against the regulator. Um, we've also seen uh, members of the public um, who have learnt of a uh, outcome of a disciplinary process uh, expressing their dissatisfaction about the disciplinary sanctions, which they might consider to be, for example, too lenient. Each of these is the potential to detrimentally impact on the confidence the public has in the regulator. At times, there can be a discrepancy between actions taken by regulators and community expectations. Uh, disciplinary proceedings are prone to being misunderstood and mischaracterised, and this may occur when the public is not fully informed by the knowledge of the facts. Most of the flow from a misunderstanding of the purpose of disciplinary proceedings which, unlike criminal processes, are not focused on punishing a registrant. Disciplinary proceedings are focused on protecting the public against the individual repeating their conduct, deterring others from behaving in a similar way, and by upholding the reputation and standards of the profession. This latter concept has at its core the confidence that the public has in a profession which is moulded by how the regulator responds to aberrant behaviour. It's tricky. No, no doubt. Well, I guess 
is it possible, or I guess how how do we incorporate public expectations when you're running a disciplinary hearing or disciplinary proceeding? Yeah, we, we've got to be really alive to the community. I think it's something that's in the past. Um, uh, we have very, very much uh, focused on uh, professional standards and upholding professional standards without recognising community expectations. And in legislation in Australia that we're, we work under, the Health Petitioner Regulation National Law, uh, this legislation expressly recognises the, the role of community expectations in assessing behaviour of registrants. So, for example, in unprofessional conduct, the, the statutory test specifically talks of conduct that falls substantially below, uh, sorry, falls below the expected um, standard of the public or the professional peers. Also, there's a, a definition of professional misconduct, which talks of behaviour which is inconsistent with being a fit and proper person to hold registration. And again, that, that seems to incorporate an expectation from society that a person is able to be trusted to carry out our profession. So we commonly lead evidence from experts about standards expected by peers. What proves more difficult for us is arguing that the community regards the conduct in question as not befitting a health professional or as discre uh, being discredited upon or reducing confidence in the profession. At present, this is principally done through submissions addressing the seriousness of behaviour and how it is incompatible with the values of the profession. We need to start looking at ways of incorporating that this reasonable public expectation about conduct of health practitioners. In doing so, we must be very careful, though, to um, advance what I call reasonable expectation, not a, a populist clamour or an outrage that may not be well-informed. Uh, such submissions must be soundly based, though, and uh, particularly by reference to the board and professional association values and prior tribunal and cutical decisions. Um, all of the codes of conduct which our boards operate under in Australia uh, are subject to broad community consultation, not just with the professions. And so that's one way in which these values can be instilled within the codes of conduct and then utilised to assess behaviour of, of um, practitioners who are registered with the boards. Um, and one other uh, way in which we, we've moved in Australia to incorporate the public expectation is by having a community representative on all tribunal hearings. Um, that, that involve disciplinary matters, which hopes to also further gauge uh, what might constitute a reasonable expectation of the public. Very good. Great. Thank you, Brad. Well, Jill, um, how do regulators contend with social media commentary by witnesses or members during investigations and prosecutions? Well, the issue starts really uh, even as early as receiving complaints because uh, sometimes the uh, challenge that uh, a regulator has to contend with is complainants who have already uh, been participating in, for example, a Facebook group where they've exchanged uh, comments relating to a particular member and the issue gets raised as to whether the uh, complaints from the outset are uh, badly motivated or vexatious and have been influenced by uh, the uh, the various 
uh, comments posted within the group. Uh, so sometimes it becomes a challenge um, as to whether the complaint should be uh, investigated and processed. Once you get past that, uh, you continue to have um, issues relating to um, dealing with witnesses who have been commenting on a matter that is under investigation in social media. Uh, and there's a number of difficulties with that. Uh, one of which is that during the investigation, unlike at the point when you're in a discipline hearing, during an investigation, uh, the uh, information gleaned during the investigation is supposed to be confidential and maintained confidential by the regulator. So the challenge uh, then that arises for the regulator is trying to um, deal with individuals who are perhaps uh, commenting on or publishing information relating to an ongoing investigation on social media in circumstances where the uh, person who is doing that may not be a member of that particular regulatory body, and therefore the college doesn't directly have any immediate tools with which to deal with uh, that sort of publication, um, unlike if uh, the person who is um, posting the information is themselves a professional and the college is in a position to, for example, point out to the member uh, that, uh, that it may not be uh, appropriate to do so. Um, in circumstances where the person who is posting information on social media sites is in fact the member who is the subject of the investigation, um, you, you have another challenge, which is that the comments themselves might be taken in some situations to show a lack of cooperation uh, on the part of the member, uh, interference with an ongoing investigation, intimidation of witnesses, and all of those things can in and of themselves constitute the basis for potentially separate allegations of professional misconduct. Um, right. When you get to the point where you're, where you're dealing with uh, the witnesses in hearing, then the challenge that you had during the investigation, which is largely one of trying to control the investigation, maintain appropriate levels of confidentiality, becomes an issue of dealing with challenges to witness credibility. Because if you have a group of witnesses who have been posting commentary on social media and using social media to discuss issues in the case with each other, then, of course, uh, that is a very fruitful um, source of cross-examination to challenge the credibility of those witnesses. And even with an expert witness, we have had cases where the social media history of the expert and their presence on social media has been used to suggest that they are not objective, that they have an ax to grind, that they are biased uh, and are trying to advance a particular agenda, again, with a view to challenging um, the expert's evidence. Um, so that is just a, a very short snapshot of some of the challenges that uh, exist for regulators 
when they're dealing with social media commentary by witnesses and members during investigations and prosecutions. Yeah, they're they're quite significant though, um, and you'd certainly sink a case pretty easily. Um, are there uh, special considerations when using social media information as evidence in prosecutions? Is there anything we have to do special with that? Well, in in one sense, it's your standard hearsay evidence uh, that you um, so statements made outside of the hearing that you may be using to, for example, demonstrate that um, uh, that the member conducted themselves in a certain way or had a uh, certain type of uh, let's say inappropriate relationship with a client or patient or perhaps cross boundaries with a client or patient. So there are certainly lots of cases. Uh, involving uh, professionals, for example, uh, sometimes teachers who have engaged in um, uh, inappropriate um, interaction with uh, students uh, on social media, and of course, that's not restricted in any way to teachers. There are there are examples of, of um, many different types of professions where the professional has engaged in inappropriate. Uh, communications with clients and patients through social media. So um, in dealing w- with with that, in some senses, it's, it's typical hearsay evidence. But in other uh, senses, it is something on which you may end up wanting to call expert evidence. So for example, you may need to get an expert to uh, provide some technical evidence about, for example, what inferences can be drawn about when something was posted on social media. Um, You may, in fact, have to call an expert, depending upon the nature and, frankly, the age of the panel, to, uh, you know, talk about Uh, particular aspects of social media that they may not be familiar with because uh, just as Mark pointed out at the beginning, uh, whereas many of the uh, registrants in professions may be people who were born in the 2000s and uh, have always had a social media presence and it may be second nature to them, people sitting on the panel who is deciding uh, a discipline case may in fact not be particularly familiar about how social media works. And so you may end up having to call uh, expert evidence to specifically deal with that type of issue. Well, that's a, that's a great point. Well, I think this has been a great discussion and a great lead into our conference session. Let me round this back out to, to Mark. Um, Mark, any uh, homework for our listeners in preparation for uh, the AEC? Oh, thanks, Line. The world is different today than it was even five years ago. So what I'd ask regulators is to reflect on uh, what are they doing now? Are they ready for the future? Have they thought about all the implications? And do they have the right policies, procedures, and thoughtfulness in place uh, to be ready for it? Excellent. Well, thank you, Mark, uh, Dean, Brad, and Jill for your time and being a part of this clear podcast. Um, you know, as I say, you know, each each time, it's always wonderful to have the opportunity to share and learn from each other, and I think this is a great opportunity, and I really look forward to hearing your session um, at the Annual Education Conference in September. And again, thank you for speaking with us today. And thank you, our listeners. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. 
Please subscribe to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or TuneIn. If you enjoyed the podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. These reviews help us improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free to visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources and a calendar of upcoming training programs and events. Hopefully we'll see you at the annual education conference in September. Again, finally, thanks to Stephanie uh, Thompson, uh, our CLEAR staff member who is the content coordinator and editor for our program. I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.